Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. If you look in the bulletin, you will see that the title of my message today is The Future Determines the Present. Sounds like a simple idea, and it is. It's rather obvious if you stop and think about it. You get up in the morning and you think about, well, the immediate future, the day, and what you're going to do that day, and that determines how you dress does it not? Or you get in your car and you are anticipating just a very immediate future and you see what is happening ahead of you in traffic and that determines you applying the brakes or the accelerator. Or to use another very simple illustration, I um, was uh, deep in contemplation, looked up, at the clock and realized, wow, it's my bedtime. So the fact that a few short minutes from now I normally go to bed determined what I did in that present moment. So to say it again, the future determines the present. Obvious, simple, and it is, but it can be very profound. Now, I normally, not always, have sermons with three points. I don't know what is it about that, but preachers just fall into this three-point thing. Today I have one, and I just gave it to you. The future determines the present. So if you hear me say that a few times, just remember, the point I want to make today is what? The future determines the present. Now that's a very simple, obvious truth in a lot of areas of our lives, but it is a profound truth when it comes to things spiritual. Let me show you where I found that in the scripture and the implications of it. Will you join me in 2 Peter chapter 3? 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to begin with verse 11. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for the hastening and coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, there's a lot in these little verses, but it really all comes down to one simple truth. What Peter is saying in this passage is that the future determines the present. Now, uh, 
Look at the little word, therefore, at verse 11. He's drawing a conclusion from something he said. And obviously, that's verse 10, where he says, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens and earth will pass away with great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up, therefore. So what he's saying in verse 10 is, the earth is not eternal. The earth is not permanent. The earth is temporal, it's temporary. And then from that, he goes on to talk about how that affects us in the present. So, the simple truth of this passage is, the future determines the present. Now, in order to communicate that and illustrate that, what I'd like to do is sort of reverse Peter's point for a second. Uh, what he is saying in these verses is, since all things that we see on this planet are going uh, to be resolved, that should affect us in the present. But let me flip it. And let me say it the opposite way for a minute. Uh, that the earth is eternal. That the earth is not going to pass away. And if that's the case, then that should affect the way you live in the present. As a matter of fact, in the flow of this book, that is what some people were saying. Go back and look at chapter 3, verse 4. They are saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. These are called skeptics in chapter 3, false teachers in chapter 2. And they are scoffing and mocking at the very idea that things are going to change. Their point is, everything has been the same since the very creation. Nothing has changed and implied and embedded in that, and nothing is going to change. So, that affected the way they lived. Now, just a minute ago, I said that these were scoffers in chapter 3, and they're called false teachers in chapter 2. Now, maybe those are two different groups, but the same thing is said about both of them. And that little observation has led to the conclusion that the false teachers of chapter 2 are the scoffers of chapter 3. And the same thing that is said of both of them is that they walk according to the flesh. That's said in chapter 2, verse 1, and it's said in chapter 3, verse 2. I should say it's said in chapter 2, verse 10. At any rate, it's said of both of them that they are living according to the flesh. Now put these two things together. They are scoffing at the idea that things are going to change because they think nothing's going to change, it's all the same, and they're living according to the flesh. In other words, their view of the future affected the way they were living in the present. So, uh, if everything's going to remain the same, if the earth is eternal, 
if this is all there is, then just live according to the flesh and do as you good and well please. And I am dead serious. If there is no second coming of Christ, if this earth is all there is, if it's eternal and everything's going to remain the same just like it has in the past and it will in the future, then you can go live any way you want. Can you imagine a preacher saying that in the pulpit? Wow. Well, I want you to know, I'm in good company. Because no less than the Apostle Paul said that in those words. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says in verse 32, If in the manner of men I have fought with beast at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? Now, what he's talking about is he underwent a lot of persecution in Ephesus. And he's saying, uh, what is that to me if the dead do not rise? Now, 1 Corinthians 15 is talking about the resurrection. And Paul is contemplating the possibility there is no resurrection. And if that's the case, I'm quoting Bible. If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If there's no resurrection, if there's no Jesus Christ, if there's no second coming, if this earth is all there is, just go live any way you want. Strong? True. That's just exactly the way a number of people live. And that seems to be the attitude of the people in 2 Peter who were called scoffers and false teachers. Look, things have, there's no difference. It's the same since creation. And where's the promise of his coming? And they applied it to the future. And they therefore lived according to the flesh. So if God does not fulfill his promise of the second coming of Christ, if Christ does not return, if the world continues forever in the future as it has in the past, we might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, and this is all there is, so get all the gusto you can. The future determines the present. Your view of the future determines the present. So when men reject the belief that the creation has a goal and history has a climax, there are moral consequences. Matter of fact, some industrious scholar has dug up a bunch of uh, epithets chiseled in ancient tombstones to illustrate this very point. One tombstone said, I am nothing. I am nothing. So thou who art still alive, Eat, drink, and be merry. Wow. If you're nothing when you die, eat, drink, and be merry. That was etched on an ancient tombstone. And that kind of an idea of the future leads to hedonism. Another said, once I had no existence, uh, once I had no existence, now I have none. I am not aware of it. It does not concern me. So the guy in the tomb says, I don't exist anymore. 
Such a view of the future would lead to apathy in the present. Another tombstone read, What is below? Deep darkness. But what of the paths upward? All is a lie. Plato said, The gods of the underworld? Mere talk. Then we're lost. That kind of view of the future leads to despair in the present. Somebody has said, it is impossible to give up the hope of the advent without ethical deterioration. In other words, if you have the view of the future, that there's nothing out there, that affects the present. And it affects it morally and negatively. But as I said, I've taken the liberty to reverse Peter's point to communicate what I think they were saying among the scoffers and false teachers. But let me return to Peter's point. Peter's point is that the earth is not eternal, that the earth is temporal, meaning the earth is temporary. Look at verse 11. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what things? <laughs> he says that in verse 10. Uh, the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away. And with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works in it are burned up. So he says the heavens and the earth are going to be resolved. That is, is amazing. That the scripture would say the whole earth is going to be resolved. When, this is not a permanent habitat. It's going to change. Matter of fact, he says it's going to be dissolved in verse 11. The word dissolve means to loose, to dissolve, to break up, to destroy. The heavens and the earth as we know it are going to be dissolved. So he says, uh, verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Now you can see there's some repetition in verse 12, back to verse 10. So what he's saying, and he's saying it twice, is the earth is not eternal. And he mentions the day of God. Now, let me pause here for a minute and um, explain something. Uh, there are these little phrases in the scripture that it's easy to pass over. And uh, sometimes those little phrases are important to understanding what the scripture has to say. For example, look at verse 10. It speaks about the day of the Lord. Now look at verse 12. The coming of the day of God. Do you see that? So you can't help but ask, well, what's the difference? Uh, is the day of the Lord and the day of God the same thing? And the answer, in my opinion, is no. And I say that for this reason. The little expression, day of the Lord, is used repeatedly in the Old Testament. And it is simply the day that God visits the earth. 
It is the day when God visits the earth in judgment. And, and I've looked at this carefully in the Old Testament, it also includes the fact that God's going to set up a kingdom on this earth when Jesus comes back. So the day of the Lord includes what we commonly refer to as the tribulation period and the millennial. Now, that's the day of the Lord. This passage speaks of the day of the Lord, and that's going to come as a thief in the night. That is, when, peace, when people are saying peace and safety, bam, the tribulation is going to start. Uh, and the Lord's coming uh, back at that point. But now, later he's talking about the day of God when the whole thing burns up. So clearly there's a difference between the day of the Lord and the day of God. The day of God in this passage seems to be referring to eternity. That God will, in, when all of that millennium is over, then he will establish eternity. And so the day of God refers to eternity, and the day of the Lord is judgment and millennial on the earth. One Bible teacher that I greatly respect, uh, a fellow named Warren Wiersbe, who used to pastor the Moody Church in Chicago, uh, pointed out at this point in common on this passage that actually the Bible talks about the day of the Lord, the day of God, and the day of Christ. Uh, that's not in this passage, but I thought I would mention, since I'm talking about these little phrases, the day of Christ seems to be referring to the day that the Lord is coming back for his church, uh, specifically, and the day of the Lord is the judgment, and the day of God is eternity. Got all that straight? Here's all you need to remember. When the day of God comes, this thing's burning up. That's the future. That's what he's saying. It's just going to go up in smoke. So his point is, the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Now, he says that in verse 10. And he says that in verse 12. What fascinates me is that the Greek word rendered great noise in verse 10 means roar. It's used of the of an arrow through the air, the hissing of a serpent, the rushing of mighty waters, the rumbling of thunder, the roar of a fire. The image is of a crackling fire. When the atomic bomb was tested in the Nevada desert, one reporter said the explosion was a crackling sound, the very meaning of this word. The very elements of the earth will dissolve and be destroyed with a great fire. Peter's language precisely fits what we now know of the atom and the breakup of the atom. So here's the picture. Imagine that you're sitting in a room with a fireplace. You're sitting on a sofa, and there's a fire burning in the fireplace. It's a bright, burning fire, and you throw a small stick in it. In a matter of minutes, if not seconds, it catches on fire and quickly burns to a crisp. That's Peter's picture as what will happen to the earth. So your view of the future, according
according to this passage, is either, you know, it's all been the same since the creation. It'll be the same in the future. Where is the promise of his coming? Go eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Or, the Bible says Jesus is coming back. The Bible says this earth is going to burn up and uses the very words that we now know the earth is made of, atoms. So, if that's the case, then that ought to affect the way we conduct our lives. And that's his point. That if you have the biblical view of the future, that ought to affect your present. So he says in verse 11, since all things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought we to be? The future ought to affect our present. If you understand what's going to happen in the future, then that would profoundly affect the way you live your life in the present. Now, what does that mean? Specifically, what does he have in mind? Well, look at verse 12. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. So one of the things it should do is cause you to look, to look for that future day. Just look. Remember it. The word translated look here means to await eagerly, to be expectant. It describes an attitude of excitement and expectation. You don't just think the Lord's coming back and yawn. He's urging you to think the Lord is coming back and let that profoundly, yes, emotionally affect your attitude. The Lord is coming back, and so we ought to eagerly anticipate his coming. A really interesting part of verse 12, it says that we ought to um, look for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. Can we hasten it? Oh, this gets real interesting. As a matter of fact, the word hastening actually can mean to accelerate. But it can also mean to desire eagerly. When I was a young Christian uh, many years ago, uh, I knew of a church that I've never seen. It was in Canada. And they took this verse and said we can hasten the coming of the Lord. So that church was known worldwide. Uh, I'm not sure what its latest history is, but back in those days it was known far and wide for sending out missionaries. And the motivation was that if we can just win enough people to Christ, we will be hastening the day of the Lord. Now, I, with all due respect to their uh, eagerness to serve the Lord, which I admire, I don't think that's what this passage is saying. It's translated in this verse, hasten, but as I mentioned, the word can mean to desire eagerly. So these uh, are two things. Looking, and that word is to wait eagerly. And now he says to hasten, which means to desire uh, eagerly. So in other words, he's just saying, look for the Lord, but don't do it in just in your head 
This is something that ought to be in your heart. You ought to be looking for that day when the Lord comes back and looking for that day when this thing doesn't exist anymore and we're in heaven with the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen? Amen. Amen. I'm ready. You ready? The more I see going on in this world, the readier, is that a word, I get. Now, look. The question is this. Are you looking backward? Are you looking forward? As a pastor, in counseling with people, I'm amazed at how many people live in the past. They, they are a product of their past. All of us are. But they live in that. They don't break out of that. Are you living in the past? Are you living in the future? Are you living in the present? That's where most people are. They just live in the moment. That's why they follow the flesh. Or are you living for the future? Now, you know where I'm headed with this, right? You ought to be living for the future, right? All right, let me ask you, what are you living for in the future? Tomorrow? Ugh, I have to go back to work. Next week? Next month? It's Valentine's Day. Next summer? Vacation? Your retirement? Your death? You see, Peter's saying you ought to have a future perspective that goes all the way to the new heavens and the new earth. That ought to profoundly affect the way you live. So, he is teaching in this passage, you ought to look for the future. There's a second thing he says. Look at verse 11. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness? All right. How should the future affect my present? Spiritually, it ought to affect me in that I live a holy, godly life. I should live holy. If the material world is to be resolved, no one should live for it. If the Lord is coming back and all this is going to melt, then... We should be living for him, which means we should be living a holy, godly life. Now, if you've been following me as we've been going through this little book of 2 Peter, you know that back in chapter 1, he gave us the steps to spiritual growth. He says, with all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to your virtue knowledge, and to your knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness. Ah. Now, two chapters later, he is saying, let me, let me explain to you, there are people who are saying, eh, it's just all been the same, it's all going to be the same in the future, don't worry about it. I'm telling you, the earth is going to melt with a fervent heat, it's going to be dissolved, it's going to be burned up like a stick in the fire. So therefore, you ought to be godly, and you ought to give all diligence to developing your godliness in your life. As I pointed out back there, it means, and it's the same word, by the way, it means to be reverent. There's a reverence, a godly awareness 
in your life when you have this level of godliness. So that you're aware in every aspect of your life of the Lord. That's the point. Now you have, as a believer, everything necessary for you to grow to spiritual maturity. What Peter says is you need to be diligent to do it. It's not that you need something else. You've got it all. In the scripture and in the Holy Spirit and in the Christian community, you have everything you need. What you might need is some motivation. And according to Peter, the motivation is the promise of God in the future. Matter of fact, go back to chapter 1 again and look at verse 4. He says, by which have been given to us exceeding and great and precious promises that through these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. He mentions in chapter 1 early the idea of a promise. And in chapter 3, verse 4, he says, and say, they are saying, where is the promise of his coming? It is very possible that when Peter mentions promise in chapter 1, he has in mind the promise of the second coming of Christ. But this much is very clear. That's what he ultimately gets to in the very passage we're looking at. So, we need to be motivated by the future promise that Jesus is coming back and the earth is going to be dissolved with a fervent heat. And that ought to motivate us to be aware of the Lord in every area of our life. Now, there's more. He says, our holy conduct and godliness. And in verse 13, he says, nevertheless, we according to his promise, there it is again, look for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's interesting. In case you haven't noticed, righteousness is a foreigner in this world. It's going to dwell there. It's going to be a permanent resident there. So, by implication, he is saying the future ought to affect the present. The future is that the world is going to fall apart going to melt. It's going to be dissolved. It's going to be destroyed. Therefore, and here are the present realities you ought to have. You ought to be looking for that. In the meantime, you ought to be aware of the Lord in every area of your life, and you ought to be living a righteous life. That's what he's saying. The point that he's making is that knowing that this earth will be replaced with a new one, we should eagerly look forward to him to return and be conscious to live a godly life in the meantime. And I think a big key to this is just being aware of the Lord. He's coming back. If you were aware of his coming in the future, that would affect your present. Amen? So what we need is a little God consciousness. Not very often. But on a few occasions, my wife has taken a trip, and I have had to batch it. 
Then there is a designated day when she comes back, and I pick her up at the airport. It's amazing. On that day, I develop this enormous Patricia consciousness that everything I do is done in light of the fact she's coming back. I get to pick her up. So I have Patricia consciousness that day. Then she gets back and I don't. <laughs> no, no, don't go there. That'll get me in real trouble. But that's exactly what happens, isn't it? When we have Christ consciousness, he's coming back. It affects the way we think, we talk, we act. Ooh, it affects who we I started out saying the future determines the present. This is a one-point sermon. And I'm at the end, and that is my point. The future determines the present. Or to put it in Peter's terms, if the earth is eternal, live as you please. They did. But if the earth is temporary and temporal and the Lord is coming back, then just live a Christ-conscious, righteous, godly life. Amen? Amen? To say it all very simply, the future should determine the present. Uh, matter of fact, uh, very often people give me a situation, it's happened several times this past week, and they ask me what they should do. And I typically respond, well, what's your goal? Tell me what your goal is, and I'll tell you what to do. Uh, a simple illustration is I've on occasion had a young man say to me, what seminary should I go to? And I say to him, it depends on what, what you have in mind for ministry, because the seminary you go to will determine... Uh, to a great degree, your ministry. Let me give you a real simple illustration. If you're going to be a Lutheran pastor, I highly recommend you go to a Lutheran seminary. <laughs> I mean, it's just political. And if you're going to be a Baptist pastor, I recommend you go to a Baptist seminary. It's just political, right? Well, that's what I mean. The future should determine the present. Simple illustration. As you know, my wife and I have been involved in... Uh, financial services, and what we did, sat down with people and talked about their money. And the first question is, what is your goal? Tell us the goal, and we will tell you what to do with your money. That determines how you plan what you do with your money. The future determines the present. But the, case, the place this comes to me all the time is in counseling. As a matter of fact, I do it all the time. I have had several conversations in the last couple of months with a lady who is um, not a member of our church, go, is going through a situation in her church, and she's asking my advice. And uh, I gave it to her. And after several of those conversations, she said to me one day, I know what you're going to ask. What is my goal? And my little counseling heart went pitter-patter. She got it. The goal determines the present, right? Right? Well, that's true spiritually. If the Lord's coming back, that ought to determine the way we 
live. Jesus told a parable. And in that parable, he talked about uh, somebody who said, the Lord is delaying his coming. It's in Matthew chapter 24. And then the man in the parable who said, the Lord is delaying his coming, I'm quoting Jesus now, he began to beat his fellow servants. And then it says, he began to eat and drink with drunkards. So he first lost his expectation of the Lord coming, the master in that parable. Next, he lost his charity, his love. And lastly, he lost his self-control. His future determined his present negatively. And it started with, the Lord is delaying his coming. Wow. That's what it leads to. You lose sight of the second coming of Christ, and it will affect you spiritually. Someone has said it like this. The knowledge that all things are going to be burned up someday ought to totally change our perspective. What do we give ourselves to in view of that fact? It ought to change our attitude toward our clothes, our furniture, our house, our buildings, our land, our cars, all things that we invest our time, money, and effort and thought in. As stewards, we certainly ought to take care of them. But Peter's point is, let us not become preoccupied with them because they are going to burn up someday. How do you react when the price of furniture goes out of sight and your favorite grass gets torn? Are you living for the material now? Or are you living in light of the future? The future should determine the present, oh no, the future does determine the present. We just have to be constantly reminded of the future. During the Middle Ages, there were a group of monks who put a skull on their desk. And they had inscribed on it in Latin, I'm going to give it to you in English, we are destined to die. They kept that skull there as a reminder of the temporary nature of life, the certainty of an end. It helped them gain, it is said, the right perspective on life in the present. One more time. Of the future determines of the present. So what you need to do is get the correct view of the future. And the rest will take care of itself. Father, help us to change our perspective and look a little past the end of our nose. That we look at what's really going to happen in the future and live accordingly. Lord, 
There are things that need to be done today in the lives of people. Speak to us and help us to make those adjustments by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.